Welcome back. You're listening to Doctors Who Create, the podcast. My name is Darlena Liu, and I'll be your host for today. We were on a bit of a hiatus last month because we are preparing for the first ever Creativity in Medicine conference that was held at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia on April 20th of this year. In particular, we were preparing for the first ever live podcast taping of the MedHume Chat run by Dr. Colleen Farrell. So for those of you who weren't able to make it in person or during the Twitter chat, this is your chance to be a part of it and experience it from wherever you are right now. Welcome, everybody. This is the live podcast taping for Doctors Who Create. My name is Darlena Liu, and along with Shiv, we co-produce the podcast for Doctors Who Create. So each month, we interview people who have found ways to be really creative in medicine. To get you introduced to the Medical Humanities chat, we're going to start off and give you an opportunity today to be a part of the discussion. We've talked a lot about creativity in medicine, and here's an opportunity to put it into practice. Uh, the ways that you can be involved is you can turn to the back of your program. There's a copy of Rafael Campos' Why Doctors Write. You can take a moment to look at it now and read through the poem. And we'll be posting a bunch of questions on the Medical Humanities chat Twitter. So you'll be able to respond and we'll read some of the responses out loud to incorporate into the discussion. Without further ado, I wanted to introduce Dr. Colleen Farrell. She is an internal medicine resident at NYU, and her academic background is in gender studies and bioethics. She writes creative nonfiction about her medical training experience and was recently featured in season two of The Nocturnist. Great episode, you should check that out. And uh, she also is the host of the Medical Humanities Chat which is known as MedHume Chat on Twitter. And they meet virtually on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this is a very special extra medical humanities chat that we'll be doing here today. And the way to be part of that, remember, is to tweet with the hashtag MedHumeChat. So let's get started with the poetry reading, which will be followed by the discussion of social media and medicine. And I'll turn it over to Colleen. Um, I am so excited to be here. Um, to take MedHume chat off the internet and bring it into a room full of wonderful people um, at this fabulous conference. So who here has participated in MedHume chat? Wonderful, awesome. So some, um, this is familiar to some of you. So a question I get a lot is what is a Twitter chat? Um, it was a new topic to me just a few months ago. Um, and in the spirit of creative writing, I'm going to follow the traditional advice of writers and show, don't tell. So I'm not even going to try so much to explain right now what a Twitter chat is, um, but we're just going to have this discussion and I'll introduce you to the idea. Um, so here we're going to have a, a panel discussion of a poem, and at the same time, there's people out there who are joining us um, from afar. And the idea with these discussions Okay, the idea with these discussions is to foster reflection, empathy, and connection in healthcare by engaging with poetry and prose. Um, so I wanna introduce our panelists uh, before we turn to the poem. Uh, 
Um, so I am thrilled to have Grace Oliver here, who is an active participant in MedHume Chat Online. Grace is a fourth year medical student in Little Rock, Arkansas, and will be starting her residency in family medicine this summer in Kansas City. Um, she won a local poetry contest in the third grade with a poem about a horse. Um, <laughs> and she continues to work on her uh, reflective writing and narrative pieces and is a wonderful contributor to our community. Um, our other guest is Dr. Margot Hedlund, who is my co-resident in internal medicine at NYU. Um, Margot works on the Core IM podcast, where she is working to develop a humanities-focused segment called At the Bedside, thinking about how questions of humanism come up at the bedside and thinking through those questions. Um, so definitely be on the lookout for that. It will be fabulous. Um, she also writes medical narratives and has been published in the Intima, the Journal of General Internal Medicine, and Neurology. So what we're going to do is read this poem together first. Why Doctors Write by Raphael Campo. A doctor writes an order in the chart. A doctor writes prescriptions to be filled. A doctor writes the patient's history in order to record it in the chart. A doctor writes because she must. She writes prescriptions that to patients seem like cures. A doctor writes the mystery of death in stark abbreviations. DNR, do not resuscitate and DNI. A doctor writes prescriptions for more pills. A doctor writes because he must, because he watched another patient die last night. A doctor wrote an order in the chart, do not intubate, which the nurse transcribed. A doctor writes invisibly upon a patient's chest, the stethoscope's black curl like punctuation, breath like poetry heard almost lovingly. A doctor writes because she must, because she can't deny the body speaks, and what it tries to say is more than what's recorded in the chart. A doctor writes because he can't prevent the heart attack, because he can't stop death no matter what new pills he might prescribe. A doctor writes an order in the chart. A doctor writes a poem that no one reads. A doctor writes because he must, because not one of us can stop the final cure. A doctor writes because she tried to stop but couldn't. Nurses question orders. Night falls mercilessly again. Doctors write because they must, because the ICU is like a dream we think we can decode. A doctor writes a poem in the chart, though none can read its invisible lines or understand the mystery of death. Our first question for our discussion is, what was your initial reaction to this poem and what resonated with you from the poem? All right, so I'd like to turn to Grace um, and ask you to respond to the, question, to, yeah, the first question. Um, what was your initial reaction to this poem? Yeah, so two things really stood out to me the first time I read this poem and reading it again right now. Um, the first was the repetition and the reframing of writing. It sort of presents two different forms of writing. There's writing in the chart, there's writing more pills, writing notes in the chart, writing invisibly on the patient, and then there's writing a poem. There's writing because she must, because a patient died last night. Um, and I saw it as almost 
forming a sense of obligation that it was repeated so many times. And there's two types of needs that that obligation is meeting. There's the writing in the chart, and then there's like the writing for your spirit, which is kind of like what we're talking a lot about here uh, for this conference. And so those two kind of dualities, like the needs that you're needing, this external obligation of writing as physicians, all those studies about how much time we spend in the electronic health record, and then this internal obligation of writing to foster your creativity and to feed your creative self. Uh, the second thing that really stood out to me was this sense of futility or hopelessness in the poem. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on a poem no one reads and more pills. We're writing more and more pills even though we can't stop anything and we don't understand the ICU. It's like a dream we think we can decode. Um, so the hopelessness stood out a lot to me as well. And how about you, Margo? I think Grace touched on a lot of things that also struck me when I was reading this poem. Um, one thing that I've found interesting over the course of thus far, like my fairly short time in medicine, is how my, um, my sense of efficacy has changed. Um, I think in medical school I had a lot of ideas about how I would be able to cure patients and heal patients, um, and I think now that I'm in my second year of residency and I spend most of my time in a public hospital where we see people who are the victims of you know, some of the worst social ills, um, I, I think I have a somewhat more nuanced understanding of how to take care of these patients and what it means to heal um, and whether or not that's even really possible um, in some cases. Um, so I think the sense of powerlessness also kind of came through to me. Um, and especially in internal medicine, like, I, I don't do procedures very much. I'm not doing surgeries. I'm not cutting someone's skull open and um, relieving the pressure from a subdural hematoma. And um, a lot of what I see is sometimes they've landed in the hospital with the absolute worst of the complications from a life of untreated diabetes, and there's, it's too late by the time that I catch them. Um, but this poem also, I think, reminded me of one, one thing that um, feels pretty potent and pretty powerful, which is the DNR and the DNI, and the conversations that we have with our patients about what gives them meaning, how, with our medical tools, we get them closer to the kind of life that they want to live. Um, and so it, it did remind me that, um, that that is one really tangible thing that we write, that we do, that we talk about, um, that, that has a lot of meaning in the end. Thank you both so much. I think from reading a fairly short poem, you've touched on so many really huge issues that we face in medicine. I think the um, the, the pressure to document and how that, um, and then our desire to reflect and make meaning and how those both are processed through this act of writing. And so then what, it raises these different questions of what that act of writing is. And I think your example kind of pulling from this poem of actually writing those letters, DNR, DNI, which is a very um, sterile, reduced language of medicine actually is reflective of often that human engagement that leads to the point where, where that would go into someone's chart. So sometimes that documentation and humanism are, have that interplay in those words that come through the poem. 
So Shiv, can you share with us what, what folks on Twitter are saying? Yeah, sure. So if we kick off the comments with um, our very own keynote, Dr. Emily Silverman, it really reflects the things that you guys were talking about, creating meaning both on the patient side for their quality of life and making meaning for the doctor who's, who is writing. She's, she writes, um, she references a quote, a doctor writes because she tried to stop but couldn't. And she says, it's a very simple, bare statement about the doctor's irrepressible drive to create and make meaning. We have another comment that we wanted to share from the Twitter discussion from Jennifer. And she writes that the chart was meant to be a place to write the patient's story to promote care of the patient. But in today's system, that story gets lost in trying to check all the boxes for insurance and billing. I think the patient's story is the poem that nobody reads. There are often so many um, comments in these discussions that I spend hours after reading them all. Um, I want to focus in our discussion a little bit. Um, so you've already, we've talked about this a bit already, but code status has a really strong presence in this poem. Do not resuscitate. Do not intubate. Um, and then Campo plays with this word code towards the end of the poem. Um, and so um, we've talked about this a little bit, but I, I want to hone in on it. Um, and ask you, Grace, how you interpreted the codes in this poem in particular. So um, I think someone used this phrase earlier today already, but thinking about code switching, the use of the word code in different contexts and the use of medical codes in different contexts was really interesting to me. And there are many mentions of death and the final like finality and endings in this poem. and including the DNR and the DNI in a way is writing the patient's ending of their story in the hospital before it's actually come to pass. And I'm still thinking about um, that tweet that was just read that the patient's chart is like a poem that no one reads. Um, I'm sure all of us who spend time really anywhere in healthcare reading patient notes Sometimes it's really hard to understand what's actually happening in the chart, even though you read it, and it's like, okay, well, billing is fine, but I still have no idea what's going on. Um, and I can find what their potassium was seven days ago, but I don't really know how they're doing or how these conversations are going with their family. And the way that I've read charts as a medical student trying to pre-round at five in the morning versus um, like reading the medical records of a family member who passed away and trying to make sense of what's really happening to the person is very hard. And I don't know what the right answer is, if there's a way that we could uh, do both, satisfy the billing people and tell the patient's story. Um, but that was what I was left thinking about with this poem, talking about codes. To the end of this, you know, we talk, the, the poem is really, by saying DNR, DNI so often, we're saying do not resuscitate, do not intubate, and that's the absence of doing the code, the chest compressions and the intubation, and perhaps because I'm also in the middle of my internal medicine residency, we are often the, the team who overnight gets called to do the codes as medicine residents, and so when we help a patient get to DNR, DNI, if that's in line with their wishes, to say I'll, I'll pass comfortably, that's um, this work that we've done. And so here we keep hearing DNR, DNI, we're not going to have this code. And then at the end of the poem, Kempo writes, doctors write because they must, because the ICU is like a dream we think we can decode. And I found that word decode so interesting in the poem, 
What does that mean? We're talking about code so much, and then we think we can decode it. I think, obviously, like the poem is called Why Doctors Write. He's trying to answer the question of why, why it is that we write both in and outside of the chart. And I, I think... I think he, like so much of this is processing and trying to come to a better understanding of um, some of the things that we come across. Um, medicine is really morbid. Um, I've seen a lot of like really horrific codes and it's one of the most, um, one of the most gruesome images and one of the most difficult things to get out of your mind and one of the most, um, one of the things that makes me Gives me, gives me pause every single time it happens. Um, because I, I don't necessarily know that families like fully viscerally understand what it means to undergo a code. And, and to some degree when I do it, I feel complicit in, in something that seems um, problematic to feel this, person, this person's life fading under my hands. Um, and and death is fundamentally just something that's, that doesn't make sense. I'm not gonna be able to understand it. No one fully is going to be able to internalize or understand it. Um, and sometimes writing is one of the only things that we have to try to make sense of it. Yeah, so if we look to the comments, they kind of echo a lot of what you guys are discussing already. <clears throat> Kathleen tweets, the words code and decode are interesting language in this question. Can we truly decode our patients and think of them as humans and not as DNR, DNI? We also had an interesting comment from Jeffrey who writes, when we document a code, we decode the process and it can make it seem less sad or less of a failure. Yeah, relating to how Margot was talking about feeling kind of complicit in this coding process and how we kind of grasp that feeling. We have a comment from Carly who writes, all of the abbreviations and medical jargon can be a way to separate us from the humanity of our surroundings. It depersonalizes and distances the experience of death, sometimes out of necessity. Yeah, there's really a lot of meaning tied up in the phrases that we use to describe codes and end-of-life care and really everything we do in medicine is those uh, TLAs, three-letter acronyms. Uh, in like DNR and DNI, there's so much meaning that we know is in there. Like you know what that looks like when someone is DNR because you're the person who enforces that and takes care of them through that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just so much meaning wrapped up in that. And I wonder sometimes if we communicate that meaning effectively to the people who are making those decisions. Mm -hmm. Which gets again to, to code switching. Yeah. I think I had a very strong feeling when I started medical school. I it reminded me so much of the semester I spent in a language immersion program in Spain. Um, I took Spanish 101 and I moved to Spain and moved in with a Spanish family and within 10 minutes of meeting them I had exhausted my Spanish. <laughs> I could only speak in the present tense. Um, I had told them how many siblings I had and that I was hungry um, and that was it. <laughs> Um, and when I got to medical school, it felt very similar. I didn't understand what anybody was saying and I had to learn this other language. Um, but the great irony of that was that when I was in Spain, the more Spanish I learned, the more I could connect with the people around me. Whereas in medical school, the more medical jargon and language that I learned, yes, it allowed me to communicate with the people teaching me medicine, my faculty and the residents, 
But the more medical language I learned, the farther and farther I got from my patients, the less I heard things as they did. And so... <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and even more. Am <laughs> we don't ambulate them. Um, anyways. Um, but so we have to learn this kind of code. I mean, I know code switching has a particular cultural meaning, and I don't mean to reappropriate that, but we have to switch between these different languages um, in our medical work and as we care for patients. Great. So I'd like to move to our last um, question um, that I hope that this poem has helped um, you all reflect on, which is what role does writing play in your life? So Margo, do you want to start with that? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's the writing that I do in the chart. There's the writing I do for myself. Um, and sometimes I find, I, like, one big thing for me is processing. Um, I um, recently took care of a patient who walked into the hospital feeling a little short of breath and, and walked out with um, a diagnosis of metastatic cancer. Um, and I would go into a room a few times a day uh, to sit with her and, and talk with her about what we were finding. Um, and essentially it was just a litany. I felt like it was a litany of yet another place that we'd found the cancer. Um, and. I was writing her discharge summary and um, tearing up as I was writing it. It was one of the most beautiful, like, objective notes that I've ever put in the chart. It was like, um, it, it was a, you know, again, this just list of all the places that we found the cancer and the studies that we'd done and the conversations I'd had with the oncologist and the conversations I'd had with palliative care and how, how this patient was going to figure out how to tell her mother, which is a really difficult conversation for her to have, and that kind of impact this was going to have on her life. Like, I put all of it in the chart, um, and it was definitely a form of processing for me. And then there's the writing that I do for myself. Um, I, I write essays to kind of wrap my head around what's, what's going on, um, and um, definitely, definitely is kind of my way of, um, of processing the emotions that come up. Um, and I think the second thing that writing has done for me is it's, um, I post my essays on my blog, and it makes me feel less alone because every time I put something up and my friends read it, someone will reach out to me and say, thank you for putting that up. I, I couldn't put words to how I felt um, when I'm alone on nights and I don't know what to do with these 14 patients or whatever and I'm, I'm confused and feel alone. But, but, but sharing that writing with other people has um, made me realize that I'm not the only person going through this experience, having these emotions that are sometimes deeply isolating. I, I can't talk with my friends about what, what goes on behind a code. Um, I, I can't share these images with other people because I don't think it's necessarily fair to them. I think that like, we kind of hold a lot of trauma from seeing what our patients go through, and I don't think it's necessarily fair to pass that on to the other people in my life who, you know, we're just out for a cup of coffee. I'm not going to tell them what it feels like to drill an IV into the, you know, uh, into the tibia of someone who's coding. And then... Um, the kind of third thing, this is something that I've come to kind of recently, um, but 
I've sort of like held this opinion for a long time that like humans are not logical and we are fundamentally emotional and then secondarily ascribe logic to what it is that we're thinking and going through. Um, and there's a lot of studies in politics, for example, that shows that that's the case. People have these gut emotions and then secondarily come up with a logic that seems coherent to them. Um, and I've wondered whether really like the mess of emotions that I feel on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm having these conversations with that patient I mentioned earlier, like whether, whether they really are as logical as I think they are or whether I'm just kind of making up this scaffold. Um, and so one thing that I think writing has, has done for me is kind of give me, there's like the person who I am and the person that I want to be and I'm writing these essays from the perspective of the person that I want to be and I think, I, um, I think I'm like trying to write myself into a better doctor. I recently read one of Margot's pieces, blog posts that she wrote about being an um, intern on Night Flow at Bellevue and we went through our internships in parallel and hadn't necessarily talked about those experiences, but reading that, I felt less alone and remembered how wild those nights can be. So thank you. Um, and Grace, what role is writing playing in your life? Uh, I have fallen very far from my poetry days in third grade. <laughs> <laughs> we would like to read that poem. <laughs> I, I need to ask my mom if she still has it. Um, so, I wonder how many of you guys could relate, but growing up, um, especially in pre-med curriculum, there's a lot of pressure to write a certain way. Uh, when you're still learning how to write and when you're going through school, you're told to write a certain way, like, no, Grace, you cannot put jokes in your history paper. You have to write your lab paper with this specific format. And in all of that, I think I lost um, my own unique writer's voice. And so something I've been doing really since I joined Twitter, I guess, a little over a year ago, was to try to get that back. Because for so long, the only writing I did was out of external obligation. It was for school or it was for a patient chart. And I think now that I am working on recollecting my unique voice as a writer, it informs that obligatory writing too. I think, like Margot was saying, like writing myself to be a better doctor or to be a better medical student in my case. but having that understanding of narrative and having that uh, compassion and insight that the humanities and that creativity can bring you, I think is a valuable asset for anybody, but it's something that I'm really trying to actively work on. Mm -hmm. um, in medical school, I worked with Suzanne Coven, who's the writer in residence for Mass General Hospital and an incredibly loving and wise person. And when I started working on writing with her, she said right away, she's like, the doctor part of you is going to want this to, this to be perfect. Like everything's gonna go right in line and you have to be ready to make a mess. And she just knew that that was going to be what's hard about it. And so um, that really resonates. So the expectations of our formal education and, and creativity helps us um, break those bounds. It's interesting that you guys all talk about writing as this expressive outlet um, and the different ways you engage with it. Some, um, Mark Shapiro, Dr. Mark Shapiro writes that writing is more the wireframe for his creative outlet um, of the oral tradition these days. I enjoy the bi-directional conversation, debate, laugh, cry, argue of oral tradition, so I use writing to set stage for entering the podcast ring. Seems apropos for a live podcast <laughs> taping. 
We also have a com we also have a comment from Rachel. I have always felt most comfortable expressing myself through writing, and I'm currently trying to find ways to write more outside of academic work. And Jules writes, if as doctors we don't write, we risk letting our experiences pass us by without processing them. Important not to be passive in our experience in education, but to actively engage, and what better way than writing? I found when trying to get back into writing lately that, and this was something that they talked about um, during the Pitching Your Narrative workshop this morning, having an idea of what your purpose is when you're writing. Are you writing to process like Margot does? Are you writing to convince someone of something you want them to believe? Um, are you writing to tell someone's story, to bear witness to someone's story? I have started trying to craft my notes, my patient notes, as some kind of weird merger between uh, what I'm going to get fussed at if I don't include and bearing witness to those patients' needs. And a lot of that for me really came from uh, an experience with a family member who was in the ICU for uh, six weeks, I think, after a surgical complication, and he ended up passing away. So I thought about him a lot while we were doing this note because he was full code when that happened. It was all very unexpected, so full code wasn't really helpful. It was just something that was copied and pasted into all of the notes. It wasn't really a conversation. But after he passed away, my family got a copy of his medical records, and they were like, here, Grace, read these. And I'm like, I'm an M3. I don't know what to do with these. But in reading them, uh, I knew a lot about measurements of different things, how opaque an x-ray was, but I didn't know how my grandpa was. There was no mention that my family was with him every single day in the hospital. There was no mention of the conversations they had. And so that really made me think a lot more carefully about the way that I write notes, not from like a risk management perspective or from a lawsuit avoidance perspective, because I don't think including any of those things would have made all that much of a difference in his case, but just knowing that they were bearing witness to my grandfather's story and half of it was copied and pasted. So things like that make me think really carefully about even this opportunity to write, even though it's like obligatory, even though it's not fun, even though it takes so long and there's so many clicks and it's just to satisfy the insurance machine, we still have opportunities to connect from human to human in these notes as well, even though it's sort of destroying us on the inside sometimes. Uh, I like to think that taking that opportunity to connect, even if it takes a little bit longer, is better for them and for me. Thank you for sharing that personal story with us. It's really powerful to hear what it's like reading the medical chart when you knew a lot of medicine, but weren't, um, we're still in that process and trying to decode the story of someone you love in that way. Yeah, I cared a lot less about the potassium when it was my grandpa. Thanks, Grace. Um, so we just have a few minutes left. Um, we, if you guys wanna, um, I think we wanted to talk maybe a little bit to change gears a little bit about um, the role of social media. Yeah. Grace and Colleen, you guys are very involved with uh, social media and Twitter. Uh, Margo, you're not so much involved on Twitter, so um, I'm interested to hear your guys' responses to kind of the role of social media and medicine and where you think, do you think there is a role for it and what is it exactly in our landscape today? So Grace, tell us why you love Med Twitter. <laughs> That's what we're really asking. I am Med Twitter's greatest devotee. Um, so I kind of, when I started on Twitter, it was really just so that I could complain when I was on clinicals. Uh, but, but since then, uh, it's become really one of the most 
meaningful ways I spend my time, which sounds ridiculous. And you're like, oh my gosh, you were born in 1993. Of course, you're obsessed with social media, like whatever, go play Facebook. But that's not like it has meant so much to me in terms of connecting with people. Like I flew here from Arkansas and I already know a handful of y'all from Twitter and I knew Colleen from that. Um, and finding mentorship, especially as, um, as women or as underrepresented minorities in medicine, uh, sometimes that is the only way we can find role models or people that we look up to that we can talk to them and pick their brain like, hey, how did you get this opportunity? Can you help me get there too? Um, social media has done that for me in many ways. Um, I've been able to get involved in research projects. I was recruited to write for a blog about women's issues in medicine. Um, and if we're being like really super practical for the med students and the pre-meds in the room, yes, it goes on your CV. It's gone really well for me having it in my CV. Um, that was the one thing I was asked about every single time on my residency interviews was my writing and what does that social media involvement look like? Um, there are lots of caveats that we don't need to go into right now, but um, yeah, social media has been very special for me. And I've learned a lot from people like Colleen, like my school does not have this type of medical humanities presence. We're working on building it up right now, but where else would I go on a Wednesday night to go talk about some poems about anatomy dissection? Uh, and where else would I recruit people for this very obscure research project? And I've just had so many opportunities come my way and I'm so grateful for it. And uh, the ability to learn from other people in healthcare and even from patients has been really, really fulfilling. If I had to nix all of my other social media to stay on Twitter, I would do it. I'm glad we met on Twitter, Grace. <laughs> um, and Marco, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but I, I, I understand, like, Twitter is a, is a strange thing in our world, and Margo is not on Twitter. <laughs> we connect in other ways, but just tell us about that. I'm really happy that so many people have found, like a lot of people I know have found so much benefit from Twitter. Um, I, I, I've been realizing over the past few years that um, social media doesn't really make me happy, um, and I felt like it was making my attention span shorter. Um, and so I, I have been like, systematically like limiting the way that I, I engage with it. Um, and uh, there's one, one of our mutual friends has been telling, telling me to get on Twitter for like a really long time and I tell her Shreya, so the stack of books by my bed that I have not yet read is like currently this high. Um, and once I've finished it and stopped putting books on the top, then I will get on Twitter. But I don't, I don't think it's gonna happen soon. And I just want to comment on the role, the unique role of social media in having these conversations around medical humanities in particular. Um, what's been really, I think my favorite thing about it is the flattening of hierarchies. And that's kind of across um, at least the med Twitter world where everybody on Twitter, you get an account and you get followers if people want to follow you, that's it. It doesn't matter if you have tenure or you're a pre-med. Um, and you can engage with people directly. There's nobody filtering that out. Um, and so I've found that in these discussions, we have senior attendings and pre-meds and patients and patient advocates, um, family members of patients, journalists, English professors, engaging in a conversation and discussing together in a way that um, breaks down those traditional hierarchies of medicine. It also allows to break down some of the um, 
the pillars of the academic world versus the private world. So some of the, our participants in the chats are in private practice. They don't necessarily have noon conferences with presentations every day and, and they join our chats. Also, medical training itself is so demanding in terms of time. Part of why I took this, like I would love to sit in a coffee shop every week with smart, thoughtful people like um, Grace and Margo and talk about poetry, but I'm in the middle of an internal medicine residency. That's just absolutely not possible. And, and so Twitter allows people to come and participate no matter what they're doing. So there's an ENT resident who sometimes participates when she's on call if no one pages her. And I think a medical student said that she was participating once while on New Jersey Transit. Um, and I think that to me is just really amazing because you have to commute, like you sit around when you're on call and to be able to have real discussions with people who have been through similar things um, is actually really powerful. So um, I've been a bit, frankly, blown away by um, the community that Twitter has um, enabled me to build. I think like any technology um, in the world, or especially, you know, we think about the technologies in medicine, I don't think technologies themselves are moral goods or moral harms. It's how we use them um, as human beings. And so my hope is to be able to continue using this particular technology um, for some good in medicine. Um, so thank you all for um, being part of this discussion. Um, I'm if I would love to meet any of you in person, if you participate in the chats, so I, and I hope you'll join us um, and continue reading poetry and stories. Thank you. And that's all we got for this episode of Doctors Who Create. Hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review. We would love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at doctorswhocreate at gmail.com. Or tweet us at Doctors Create. Or check out our website, doctorswhocreate.com, to listen to our podcast episodes and also to check out other articles and profiles of physicians who are creative. Intro music brought to you by the band Night Float.